Bob's Red Mill is proud to bring you modernist breadcrumbs. Love learning about food? Get delicious recipes, valuable coupons, and more discussions of our very favorite ingredients at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. I'm Michael Harlan Turkel, and this is Modernist Breadcrumbs. This is the end of bread, or the heel as it were, that diminutive last slice of predominantly crust, with sufficient enough crumb to still merit it as part of the loaf. With that being said, this is the last episode of Modernist Breadcrumbs. I'd love to say we're going to offer you a final dissertation, but the thesis all along has been about truth in its vastness. Spanning the globe for grains grown, stone milling practices to modern machines, wars and peace over the millennia. It is with complete candor and voracious grace that we've been delivering you the story behind bread's art, history, and science by way of modernist cuisine in their 2,642-page Bible, Modernist Bread. Through research, writing, photography, and many interviews, We've come to the conclusion that the most honest thing about bread is we still have a lot to learn. No, that's bullshit. Can I? Well, that's BS. The bread box is the biggest waste of money. That it 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 serves no purpose to keep bread fresher. Unlike an actual bread box, this episode won't be bullshit. Bread is immeasurable, no longer bound by precepts. The new dictum of bread baking is built on shapes and sizes we haven't even dreamt of. This proverbial bread box will, however, hold all the bits of bread we haven't gotten to yet, or have yet to be made. In this episode, we'll continue to question whether bread is an art or a science, why we deeply care about bread in the context of hospitality and commensality, what unusual ingredients and inclusions are creative or regionally cultivated by seasonal limitations. Finally, we'll talk about sandwiches, bread's most famous or infamous role, which plays into how American-style bread developed. In the end, join us as we wax poetic on the future of bread, fostering a need to bake more. Is bread art or is it science? Because it feels like a lot of the references you've had so far are, are from art, but where's the empirical data? So, of course, bread is a artificial food. Uh, it, artificial in the sense it was made by people. Uh, so there's lots of wonderful foods. An oyster is not an artificial food. You pry it open and you eat it, and it's the way the oysters have, have evolved for uh, their own reasons. But bread is a total transformation of the grain into something else. 
and was a very important uh, invention because uh, whole civilizations were based on um, grain. So if you're going to eat grain as your main thing, you got two choices, porridge or bread. What would you do? Um, <coughs> it, it was really a very important thing, but it's the thing I love about it is that people learned how to harness yeast and fermentation before they knew there was such a thing as microorganisms. Uh, they learned all kinds of stuff that uh, actually wasn't either wasn't known when we started our book and we figured it out or still isn't known after we finished because we couldn't figure it out. The ability of people to learn from experience and harness something they don't fully understand is awesome. And that's why we got bread, actually, and wine and cheese. With a name like Modernist Cuisine, a little bit of science is inevitable. Nathan Mirvold, the founder of Modernist Cuisine and co-author of Modernist Bread, explains that writing Modernist Bread required some serious analysis. One of the things that uh, we do now when we start a book <laughs> is... Uh, we gathered as many books as we could, both at the beginning of the project and then we accreted over time. And we entered all of the recipes into a, uh, a computer database so that we can analyze it. So we've got more than like 120 baguette recipes. And the reason for that is we wanted to understand what the world thinks a baguette is. Um, and naively, I thought initially, well, we'll see all the baguette recipes cluster around one set of parameters. And then we'll see like all of the ciabatta bread cluster around a different set of parameters. And uh, a ciabatta loaf and a, um, uh, and a baguette are roughly similar. They both have four ingredients. Sometimes ciabatta has a little bit of fat, so it's got a fifth ingredient. So they're both relatively straightforward breads. It's not got lots of funny flavorings in it or anything else. I thought, well, gee, these will cluster and we'll see, we'll understand from the clustering, this is the set of things you do if you want one bread versus another. And I have never been so wrong. Oh my God. Uh, we have found that there's almost no consistency between recipes. And these are not just random recipes off the internet, which could have typos and other things. We'd all love to have an apple fall on our head, but sometimes the gravity of being wrong can teach us more. Francisco Magoya, co-author of Modernist Bread and head chef at Modernist Cuisine, knows that science isn't always full of glamorous discoveries. But like Newtonian law, neither is inertia. It wasn't all of our, what we're calling aha moments, but it's a, a handful just to kind of walk you through the process of how we think through things and how, you know, one of the biggest things is like when we're thinking about what we want to do and how we want to do it, there has to be a question first. And the question is like, what could be better about this? Or what is wrong with this? Is there anything wrong that we need to fix? Sometimes things don't need to be fixed, but sometimes when you're trying to fix these things, you come up with other solutions and you come up with other ideas that had nothing to do with it in the first place. The modernist approach is inherently scientific and data-driven, but can baking as an experiment really be repeatable? 
first of all, bread is a very resilient thing. Um, uh, our running joke has been that we would make a random bread recipe generator because you could randomly pick a bunch of parameters and not only still have bread but still be within the realm of what reputable baking books say, <laughs> which is kind of crazy. And so the other thing that is uh, about this is bread is subjective and different re uh, bread recipes have different proportions because either that maps to the uh, idea of what perfection is to the author or more likely it's a combination of what that author thinks is per perfect combined with some other constraints. Bread is a very malleable thing and uh, after plotting all of these parameters from you know, 350, 400 books, something like that, um, we then methodically went and we tested all the crazy shit, all the ones that had like a wacko parameter that was way outside the norm. And uh, there's a set of them that we call the WTF <laughs> breads where we're pretty sure there's a typo because, man, you cannot make that into bread. <laughs> there is something seriously wrong with the recipe. The minds at Modernist Cuisine aren't the only ones taking a scientific approach. Emily Bueller, the author of Bread Science, The Chemistry and Craft of Making Bread, has a hypothesis or two of her own, which are more conventional than you'd think. I think it helped me learn about bread because I approached everything with the kind of controlled experiment mentality, and I would take notes on how things turned out and adjust the temperatures from one day to the next. And since I was doing it every day, I always had dough to watch. So it was a lot easier to, um, you know, to get used to feeling dough and feeling like, oh, it's stiffer today than it was yesterday, or the poolish has risen more today than it did yesterday. So I do think my brain kind of turned everything into a big science experiment. And I was watching every day to see if I made a change, what would come out different. But some breadheads are more callow than Curie, more Pollock than Pavlov. Jeremy Shapiro, the chef behind the blog StirThePots.com, puts baking in the realm of sculpture, worthy of the Met or Musée d'Orsay. It's an art in itself, the craft, the seeing the thing move from being a lively bacterial thing to then setting it like in gold or in stone by baking it and killing it. So you're like keeping it alive and then you're killing it that's my kind of like theory on bread i had a chef talk about that once me scolded me for saying it's art so i said okay it's a craft um bread is really personal uh to me at least i you know it's the quiet time where you get to think or try to think and understand what you're doing uh i think it is a craft it's a science it's an art it's all of them it's a different way of creating art and I'm you know I put food on plates my dad was a painter so for me putting food on plates is a painting in a way yeah except somebody eats it goes out the other side and <laughs> you never see it again imagine a bread museum and not just the mold on a loaf from the 18th century but if we stay with painting metaphors romanticism is a good place to look art from that period emphasized emotion 
individualism, and the glorification of nature. Emma Zimmerman of Hayden Flower Mills is emblematic of these elements, or just smitten by the plain romance of grain. It's like a sweet thing, too, because it is like you can't like force the grain to do something, but you can like let it show you. Um, and it would be cool, yeah, if, and more chefs are open, bakers are open to that. Um, but again, it is kind of a compromise of not, you know, they have to have some things to start with. And, and bakers love data and protein and add all these numbers that, they, that can help them um, guide where their bread is going. But, but then we have some bakers that are like this home baker. and She just does it all by feel. And she makes the most beautiful loaves with our wheat that no one else can make. So I feel like those other bakers that are highly trained and use all those numbers and they can't use it because it doesn't fit into their ideal of what flour should be or um, they're used to using really highly processed flour so I think yeah I don't know I like we like to stay on the more like romantic side of it but as like a business that's growing we have to consider being a little more scientific if you listen very carefully you might hear wheat's foray into a different kind of art baking is a visceral experience affecting all the senses Apollonia Poilan, owner and executive chef of Poilan Bakery in Paris, has an ear for quality. So when the bread comes out of the, of the oven, um, one of the first things you do is you, so you, we take a trolley and we put the really hot loaves in, um, in order, once against, one against the other. And after a few seconds, it, the bread should start singing. And the... It's, it's a very peculiar sound whereby um, this, the stage of, that stage of baking has, of course, a less glamorous name. It mean, it's, it's le ressuage, which means to, to re-sweat, which is, of course, not so sexy. But, um, but that's really when the bread starts singing. And, and so you basically hear the crust crackling against the, the top or bottom of the neighboring loaf of bread. And to me, that's one of the most beautiful sounds because it's a testimony that the bread is thoroughly cooked in some ways, although you do have to knock on the, on the bottom of a loaf to make sure that it, it, it rings just as if you were knocking on a door. But it's also, it's also a moment where, where you have, where the breads, um, um, you can feel that there's a unity between all the breads that were in the oven together baking and now they're on the, on the bread rack and that's sort of their, their final, final moments before they're sold and eaten through by our clients. And just like any other art form, it's easy to see the beauty in a perfect loaf. The juxtaposition of a hard crust and a soft crumb, the contrast of dark and light in the mode of charoscuro used by artists like Rembrandt, Da Vinci, and Caravaggio, brushstrokes imparting shadows on a canvas. Lionel Vatinet of La Farm Bakery in North Carolina works like an impressionist, taking his inspiration from the world around him. There's a beauty of uh, to be a baker, and for me, it's a reflection of my travel, my travel around the world, in much travel, you know, here in the North, Central, South America, and it's so wide open uh, here in my state, you know, the, uh, the creativity, don't have any borders, and uh, um, 
tradition, you know, we're getting some definitely from where I'm coming from and uh, now is wide open and we can use uh, sustainability locally and uh, it's all beneficial for our consumer at the end of the day. In baking, as in the art world, styles come and go. When was the last time you saw a new pointless painting since Surratt or Van Gogh? Glenn Roberts, founder of Anson Mills, isn't quite postmodern as he's steeped in tradition, but sees the point of looking forward. Bread is just fashion. It's not particularly territorial, but it does have terroir, and its forms are fashion as well. But its basic function is not fashion. So I believe in breads made from anything if they are appealing and nutritious and have high flavor and aromatics. What is it about a bunch of smashed grains, thrown together with water, then heated up, that so easily brings us together? Whether Darwinism or genetics, we can all agree, we love bread. But why? First of all, I care about food. And I've cared about food longer than I've cared about technology, because I was a little baby, and little babies like to eat, but not so much on technology. Also, back in my day, we didn't have none of that fancy technology. Um, so, uh, so anyway, I've always been into food. Uh, you know, food is both fuel for us, it, it's necessary to run our bodies, but food is also uh, an enormous expression of artistic creativity in the hands of a, a great chef. Uh, it's an emotional experience for the person eating it. Uh, I think all, much of what is great about people happens in microcosms around food. One of the reasons I wanted to do something on bread was that, um, you know, through bread is such a basic food for us that our society went on a mission to make bread really cheap. And that included make, doing these huge uh, commodity scale agriculture, it also included making machine made breads. Well, in the 1970s, both in France and in the United States, there was sort of a reaction to this, and that's how the artisanal bread movement started. And these people said, hey, this crap in the supermarket might be cheap, but it isn't any good. Let's actually make good bread. What is good bread? That's a matter of taste, with a capital T. Pierre Bourdieu, the French philosopher, tells us that cultural capital and the allure of taste that comes with it is acquired through education and socialization. So educate yourself. Bordeaux might not condone chewing with your mouth open, but Francisco sure does. When you're tasting, as you know, tasting is a lot about aroma, okay? So it's, if, you, if you think about flavor, what you're doing is you're combining aroma and tastes. But if you don't have aroma, if you think of the, you know, the times you've had allergies or a cold where you can't really breathe through your nose, you really only know what you're eating because of the texture that you're, you have. And because you saw scrambled eggs, I know I'm eating scrambled eggs. I can't really taste them, but I know that what they are because I've seen them and they feel like scrambled eggs in my mouth. Um, and if you could magically all of a sudden like breathe while you're chewing, then you'd be like, ah, oh, this is scrambled eggs for sure. Now I know for sure. Um, and a lot of that has to do with retronasal uh, respiration, which is, you know, the back of your nose is where you, where you get these little puffs of air that go, you know, as you're chewing, you come up uh, behind your nose and you're able to perceive those aromas. When you 
rub the crumb and the crust when you chew and as you're, as you're chewing. You know, I recommend chewing with your mouth open. It's not super polite, um, obviously, but it, it's, it's kind of like this thing where people drink when they taste wine, when they do that, like, whistling. Uh, you're getting, you're oxygenating it, you're combining oxygen into the, into the wine. You need to do more or less the same thing with bread. That chewing is obviously going to combine saliva into the bread. Saliva is body temperature, so it's warmer than room temperature. So as you're warming the bread, it's going to become more flavorful. It's not going to taste the same the moment you put it into your mouth than the moment after you've chewed it and it's actually broken down by your teeth. So as it warms, you're going to get more flavors in there. Um, or they'll become more apparent. When you swallow, there's going to be those little puffs of air that come up to the back of your nose too. And that helps you also get those, those aromatic compounds. Um, but the other thing that a lot of people don't do is when they're chewing, is think. What are you tasting? Try to put a name on it. What is it? What, are, what is it similar to? There usually is always going to be a point of reference. Um, it's weedy. It's buttery. I mean, there, there's, there's different terminology for different kinds of bread. Um, it's not written in stone, this terminology, but it's just there are flavors that, that are pretty common in bread. Um, toast, corn popcorn, caramel. Um, in the case of, of breads like rye, there's molasses, there's going to be some um, like malted flavors, barley flavors in there, uh, licorice flavors. Um, and and this, it, it really depends on, on, on what bread it is you eat. It might be a while before every loaf of bread comes with its own tasting notes. After all, it's harder to swirl ciabatta than chardonnay. Or maybe not. Maria Speck, journalist and author of Simply Ancient Grains, thinks the Germans are on to something. Since 2015, Germans have even something called Ibred Sommelier. So this is someone that really um, judges breads, you know, based on their aroma, right? Just like a sommelier would do. And, uh, and I mean, this is a training people get for that. So it's not just, I call myself bread sommelier. It's an official, you know. So there's this long, you know, long, long um, uh, passion. Back in my day, you know that saying where you believe that the breads of your childhood were bigger? and you walked uphill both ways to get them? Maybe not? At least nostalgia can set us on an eternal quest for the perfect loaf. My dad came home with ginormous loaves of, you know, whole grain breads or with the pumpernickel, which is, you know, traditionally made from nothing but whole rye and water. I mean, that's a bread, you know, not what you typically see until very recently on U.S. store shelves. I mean, it had nothing to do with, with pumpernickel, these light gray, uh, fluffy, <laughs> you know. No, I mean, I don't want to, you know, obviously, you know, this is, you know, this talking the prejudice Germany. <laughs> but I was like, when I came here, I'm like, this is not pumpernickel, right? Like, but of course, I had not understood, you know, the transformation it had gone through in the U.S. So, 
Now I know better. Another thing that we have in Germany that that I was raised on is basically uh, something called Abendbrot, which is it means literally and translate means evening bread. And that is essentially our meal in the evening. So you just have, you know, whatever you have, but the base is bread. And so you just make, you know, a big slice of often whole grain bread. And then you have, you know, either with butter and cheese or with um, cold cuts or radishes. So it's kind of the whole whatever you have at home, essentially, right? But it shows how ingrained the bread culture is that we actually have something called Abendbrot, evening bread, or we also have something called Brotzeit, which means time for bread, (laughs) which means you sit down and you unpack your bread and you eat. (laughs) And it's a beautiful tradition. Viva Mexico, or via our grandmothers. We all have these childhood memories, and we'd love to hear yours. Please send a message to Heritage Radio Network on Facebook or Twitter with your favorite bread memories. And remember to use the hashtag modernistbreadcrumbs. I was born in Mexico City, and there's a, well, there's not this tradition of artisan bread as we know it today. There are a lot of breads that are either from Mexico or made mostly in Mexico um, that I I really, like, think back on very fondly. So if there's these sandwiches called tortas, in Mexico, that are are made with a bread that is very similar to banh mi. Um, so it's it's basically very soft. It's big, like it's like this this super soft crumb. But then you have this outside that kind of shatters a little bit. Um, it's harder. It's hard to replicate that. By the way, you need to have the right flour. But those that bolillo um, or telera, some people call them teleras. Those are breads that that I really I'm very I think of them very fondly. It's they're hard to get here. Um, there, it's not exactly an easy thing to, to, to replicate. Um, I, a lot of sweetbreads like conchas, um, these are like, it's almost, it's like a brioche, but it has this like cookie crust on top of, uh, you know, the, the really traditional ones are made with like shortening, uh, <laughs> and uh, a little bit of flour, a little bit of powdered sugar. And so you get that like crunchy crust. It's almost like a Dutch, um, uh, Topping, Dutch crunch, sort of. Um, and they come like in every color you can imagine. Um, my my father is from uh, Spain, and so there was always a tradition of having bread at the table. And it was, it was always some form of baguette-like bread, but also more tightly crumbed, more... Uh, more Close crumb. It's not like baguettes like we know them today, um, with that like shattering crust on the outside too. So, I, I those are breads that when I think about like family meals and I think about like w- what I had as a kid, these these were the breads that we have. I was probably I don't know seven, something like that. And uh, a few years later, I discovered cookbooks, and I thought that was the coolest thing, that you could read these books, and they would tell you how to do all this. You didn't have to be like grandma with infinite experience growing up on the farm, ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum. You, ha- you, you could just do it. Uh, so uh, I decided I would cook Thanksgiving dinner um, all by myself. I was nine years old, uh, 
And uh, I did. I must say, I do a better job today, but, but that got me interested in cooking. And at some point, I decided I would make my own bread, and so that was probably when I was 10, I made my own bread uh, for the first time. Um, and it's interesting because a couple of the things that I worried about when I was 10, making my first loaf of bread, I still worry about. We also have genetic memories as a species, which comes from observation, like Jane Goodall or Gorillas in the Mist. There's an anthropologist at Harvard named Richard Wrangham who's written a brilliant book called Catching Fire where he points out that one of the things that contributed enormously to humans becoming human was cooking. Um, now, I've been to Rwanda to see the mountain gorillas, which is an amazing experience. And the mountain gorillas sit around and mostly eat wild celery. And let me tell you, the wild celery is really strong. Um, but the gorillas kind of like it. If you eat some too, then they think, well, okay, this guy's really ugly and pink, but, but at least he eats wild celery. Um, well, if you look at these gorillas, they have massive jaws, huge molars. Um, uh, they have a crest up on the top of their skull because – the uh, muscles that work their jaw go all the way up to the top of their skull. It's just huge things. And the reason for all of that is there's not a lot of food value in wild celery. Uh, so gorillas have those jaws for the same reason that uh, health food stores have blenders. Okay, if you want to get uh, nutrition out of I don't know, wheatgrass or kale or whatever the hell you're trying to juice, you need a juicer. And you need a juicer because we humans do not have the dentition to support eating tremendous amounts of raw food. So Rangham has done a whole series of experiments uh, uh, where he documents how much more nutritious cooked food is than raw food. For an animal our size, the human intestine is actually quite small. Um, and so we really are built to have cooked food. And of course, there's plenty of food that is delicious raw. I'm not suggesting you should cook your lettuce, um, although there are actually a surprising number of French recipes for braised lettuce, and it's better than you'd think. Celtic wealth and lettuce is delicious. Well, and if, if I had to choose between uh, a steady diet of braised lettuce or braised Kale, I think I might go for the lettuce. Um, so it, this is important because uh, bread is a baked product. And if you don't bake it, you don't gel the starches, the bread won't hold up. It's now part of our eating evolution that no meal should be without bread, as expressed by Camille Sassi, a leading New York City baker and bread consultant. Bread is one of the most important part of the of the meal. Yeah, like without bread, it's like something is missing. It's like it's not the same. It's like I, I feel like bread is noble as as a good bottle of wine. So it's very important to have um, to have a good bread and uh, a good coffee and a good wine. Is the 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 three things that's very important for a, for a, a a good meal. Of all those things, bread might be the most approachable to the average DIYer. Have you ever roasted your own coffee or made wine in your home kitchen? 
Peter Reinhardt, author of Artisan Breads Every Day and chef on assignment at Johnson & Wales University, spends a lot of time teaching people how to bake. One of the reasons why I think I became a bread baker instead of a cheese maker or a beer maker is because uh, I like the fact that bread make bread itself is very forgiving. Uh, even with the scales, you know, the, we tell people that it's great to have a digital scale so you can get pretty close to the weights that you should have. But if you're a little bit off, or if you know, if you're a fraction off, uh, and we know that because people have used teaspoons and tablespoons for years and never been accurate. Um, and you still get good bread. The flour, I think, protects you in a way that, uh, say, in beer making, the water, the, which is the main ingredient instead of flour, can't protect you. If you've made a, a small measuring error, it's going to magnify in, in, in the end. Whereas bread, you know, you're going to end up with pretty good bread even if you're a little bit off. So I, there's something about that forgiving quality of bread that just fits right into the bread as metaphor aspect of what's interesting to me about bread. Even chefs who have conquered all manners of food still look at bread with childlike wonder. Jason Bond, chef-owner of Bondier in Cambridge, Massachusetts, bakes all his restaurants bread in-house, as did generations of Bonds at home. As a chef, you know, just, you know, a lot of childhood food memories, you know, became important to me as I was trying to decide how I was going to, you know, what my voice was as a chef and a lot of how I cook you know, in general goes back to things that my grandmothers did and, and great grandmother. And, um, so, um, when we started Bondir seven years ago, I wanted the bread program to be, um, you know, to reflect, you know, the, the world of ingredients that we have around us, just like the rest of the food on the menu did. At restaurants, bread may be an assumptive amuse-bouche, but it should be considered an integral part of the meal. How does something shared so freely for so long find itself as gratuity included without feeling like a service charge? Maybe because I'm old, but I still buy into the idea that, you know, it's a, a gesture of hospitality. And so, you know, I like that you have something, you know, that we have something that we, that we just, that we give you. You know, it's not just some crappy little thing that we threw together. It's, you know, we, we spent a lot of, you know, I spent a lot of hours working on, on the bread that we serve. And it's, you know, it's, it's all something that, you know, we don't charge for it. So you know, it's, you know, so it's, you know, it's to, to me, that's an important part of it is that gesture. And, you know, you know, I think that's one aspect of it is like, I totally understand why places do charge for it because, you know, it's, Especially the type of flowers we're using. I mean, bread's expensive. It's, you know, it's just, it's not a like I say, it's not a crappy little throwaway thing. It's you know, it takes a lot of labor hours and expensive ingredients to make it. So, you know, so you know, I enjoy it when I see that somebody is you know generous enough and to to offer a good product like that. And still, you know, to me, that's truly the gesture of hospitality. Is, you know, you know, is that generosity that it represents. And, and then, you know, more and more people, more and more restaurants are getting better and better at making bread now. So, you know, which is, you know, like kind of what you guys are doing, your awareness is so much higher than it was, you know, even just a few years ago. 
even in dining halls, arguably the world's worst form of restaurant. Bread can bring people together. And we're not talking about the waffle iron or the stale cereal. When I started school in the fall of 2003, one of the main things that I missed um, in the dining hall was having a toast of my bread in the morning. So eventually I started shipping my, my breads every week and I would... Um, come down to the dining hall every morning with some breads, have, um, have maybe a few preserves, having traded them for bread with some of my classmates, uh, and um, would um, have the most wonderful and wholesome start of my day uh, with, with a piece of toast or, or two. And that, to me, was the most memorable moments of my college um, uh, experience because um, I was very fortunate that our uh, dining um, dining hall uh, gave uh, onto the the River Charles, and so having having the scene of the of the river in the morning, the the quietness of of, of the river and the athletes rowing on it, uh, and enjoying morning chats with um, with the teams of of the Harvard Dining Hall for. Um, um, over overbreads, uh, and you know, was really a testimony for me that bread can really feed delicious and wonderful, peaceful moments. But it was also for me a great way of showing a great nod to the fact that bread really creates a link between people. Sharing isn't always easy. Eric Kaiser, owner of Maison Kaiser, knows that a little competition never hurt anybody, and it definitely helps sell baguettes. In the street in Paris, the people, they love to buy baguettes and they like to share the bread with the kids. But all the people wo- wo- want the quignon of the bread, you know, it's the first part of the bread is very uh, pointy. So it's black. And when you put it in your mouth, you have a good caramelization. So kids love that. Huh? So we say we share the baguettes. This is why in some families, they love to have two or three baguettes because all the people want the extremity of the, bread, of the baguette. <laughs> Le Crouton, that first bite of baguette, is so coveted. But if we're talking about other corners of the world, what does that first bite of flavor mean, and where does it come from? J.D. McClellan, producer and director of The Grain Divide, a documentary film about the world of wheat, considers ingredients and their impact on taste. Yeah, I mean, flavor's everything, right? I mean, what's the point of eating if it doesn't taste good? You know, and I think any chef will tell you that What's the most important? What's the thing you look for most in ingredients or in, in making food? It's always flavor. There's terroir, and then there's seasonality, the additional ingredients that make an ordinary loaf extraordinary, as noted by Peter Endress, owner and bread baker of Runner and Stone in Brooklyn. I think the seasonal is more like just flavor, or what I think, what flavors I think go nice with the season. So, like in the winter, we do like a dried fig. Uh, an anise bread, and it's not because dried figs aren't available the year round. I just think that I don't know. There's something about fig and anise that makes me think of like fall, winter, holiday season. Um, but yeah, all the breads. I, I think only some of our um, the breads that have higher percentages of pre-ferments in them are the ones that usually are more reactive to the heat. So that's when the summer gets challenging. When the bakery with the air conditioner on is at 110 the whole day around and 
we're constantly throwing ice in things or have to keep an eye on does and put them in the walk-in. I think that's when, like our rye ciabatta, for example, which has a high percentage of rye and a high percentage of flour pre-fermented is probably our most delicate. And that's the one that, you know, falls apart in a 20-minute period if left unattended. Uh, having air conditioner, ice, walk-ins, that's great. Yeah. It's such a boon. Uh, so, like, right now, we have, usually we have a seasonal bread that we keep on the menus. Right now we have a pistachio rhubarb bread on that we'll be doing for maybe another week or so as rhubarb peters out, and then we need to um, replace that, so there will be more development on that front. Daily menus change, but why not a bread set? Jason Bond uses all the resources around him, from farmer's markets to Chinatown, to augment the ideas behind bread service. We started making three breads every day. One was just, you know, a specific grain, and that's it. Just a, a sourdough. No, no flavorings. Um, one bread we did was called the Sea, you know, because we're here in Boston, and, you know, obviously that's a big influence. So it had uh, it had dried shrimp from Chinatown. We did a lot of Chinatown type stuff. Um, dried shrimp, squid ink, uh, fish sauce, uh, a couple of different kinds of seaweed. You know, so it was kind of like marbled. And it was visually striking. It was, you know, very just umami rich. And it was it was one of those breads that people either loved it or you know, absolutely hated it. And so, and if nothing else that kept the conversation lively. And then, and then we, we do a third bread that was, you know, some sort of flavored thing. Um, you know, like one we do right now is um, fried chicken with malted barley flour and hops. You know, so like we're getting fresh hops, they're picking them right now at four star farms. You know, we get different varieties so you've got that really fruity aroma and the, the bitterness. But the bitterness is tempered by the fat from the fried chicken. You know, and the chicken simply comes from, like, you know, it's my trimmings from preparing the chickens that we get from out in Lincoln, Mass. So it's, you know, it's not like I'm buying fried chicken at the store. It's, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's part of our, you know, program of total usage of ingredients. But so, but then the, the malted barley flour, of course, has... You know that fruity element, and so you know it comes together as hopefully a you know balanced a balanced dish in a way. Yeah, so you know, so we're trying to have fun with bread and let bread express you know the, the total of ingredients and you know sort of the organic use of all those ingredients that we have you know kicking around the place. And you know, and at the end of the day, we want them to all be a picture of you know. Cambridge today, you know, who's producing, what are they producing, and what do we have? And that's the goal. Innovation can work while still embracing tradition. Using cues from locality can make you a new local hero and still be part of the wider world of cuisine. You know, that New England tradition is definitely around us. And so, you know, part of developing a dish to me is giving it context and and it's little flavor clues like that that help develop context. So if I want a dish to have sort of a New England character, in quotes, you know, then, then I'll use like a brown bread. You know, I might have brown bread crumbs on something or I might have an, on a Dama toast. 
and a damn toast are, are yummy because they're molasses and corn. And, you know, I like a, a really good brown bread because it's got the dark rye and the molasses and, you know, the flavors are, can be intense. And, you know, but so, you know, to me, it's more about, you know, setting the context for a particular dish. You know, if there's a particular theme to a dinner that we're doing and, you know, if using a New England recipe makes that more clear in the diner's mind, then we'll use it. You know, where I just, just as easy you might use, you know, a Japanese ingredient or an Italian ingredient or, you know, an Irish recipe or something like that, if, if that's where it's more appropriate. Ever have a Southern pretzel? We mean Swabian, not the American salad. As you'll see, even traditional foods around the world can vary within restricted borders. The way that they make them in my father's hometown is the way we shape them here. It's like a southwestern style. I mean, on our menu, we call it a Swabian pretzel because it is the shape is pretty specific to that area of Germany. So it's got thin arms on top that are crunchy, and then the bottom part is fat and scored so that you can slice it in half and put butter on it or cheese and charcuterie. So for me, that's the ideal. It certainly has to be lye-dipped. None of this baking soda boiled stuff that happens. Uh, and, um, yeah, a little sweetness in the dough, a little bit of fat in the dough. We use butter, but I think uh, most of the German places use uh, schmaltz, which could mean anything from plant-based fat like a Crisco to duck or pork fat. But it isn't all blondie here, and we're not talking Anglo-Saxon. The Dagwood sandwich from Chick Young's comic strip Blondie and its central character Dagwood Bumstead always sought to stuff as much meat and cheese as he could between two slices of bread. It seems like every now and then you you know somebody adds another grain to their grain mix in in, in a dough. So you have like seven grain bread. And then another baker comes and it's like, okay, I'm going to do nine grains. And another one comes in, it's like 12. And, and so it's like this game, this race to see how much stuff you can put in it. Um, and so we decided to be as ridiculous as we possibly could with this. And we have a 35-grain count loaf of bread. Now, the reason why it's absurd is because in, you're not going to get in every bite a piece of every one of those grains. And for starters, I mean, it's a, it has to be a combination of grains and seeds and nuts. There aren't 35 different grains that you could buy that would be distinct enough that you could put in a loaf of bread that you could go, I totally taste all 35 of these things in here. Um, and so there, there's that race for, you know, how much can you put in dough? But how much is too much? Christina peterson Magoya, a professional bread baker who spent time working for Mark Furstenberg and Thomas Keller, is also Francisco's wife and has had it with all these seeds. I think seeds go crazy in bread. I think that any time a baker puts excessive amounts of seeds on the outside of bread, it's like a bird seed bread. And it's messy to eat, it's difficult to eat, you don't get the true flavors of the components working together, you're just getting the seeds. So I really have problems with seeds. <laughs> I know, isn't that ridiculous? <laughs> yeah, it is, right? 
Um, I, yeah, and I think the gaps and pockets that are created by inclusions really um, don't allow full gluten to development to happen, and sometimes they kind of mess with fermentation and the rate of fermentation that um, I think it... I think inclusions, if used wisely, shouldn't be the highlight of a bread, but are nice additions. I think a big one, actually, that um, came from TK was, you know, less is more. And that is so true. And luckily, that was something he didn't, um, when we were setting the menu for Bouchon, that was something that he felt really strongly about, you know, let's create a product that's perfectly executed and is clean in flavor profile and clean in appearance. So as a result, there wasn't on the menu a lot of a lot of what I would call bread fluff. You know, a lot of inclusion breads. Um, so yeah, I think I think just really keeping it simple is really at the heart of everything. You know, keep it simple, keep it clean, keep it uncluttered. We'll let you chew on that, and we'll be right back with more modernist breadcrumbs. Bob's Red Mill is proud to bring you Modernist Breadcrumbs. Love learning about food? Get delicious recipes, valuable coupons, and more discussions on your very favorite ingredients at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Hey, Kat, let's play 20 questions. Okay. You guess. I've got a good one. Is it a person, place, or thing? Thing. Is it bigger than a bread box? It depends. How big is a bread box? You know, a standard bread box. Okay, I've literally never seen a bread box. What do people even use them for? It's a box that keeps your bread fresh. How have you never seen one? Uh, because my bread comes in paper bags usually, and because I eat bread before I need to worry about storing it. Okay, so bread boxes are more commonly used by people who bake their own bread. The main purpose is to control the temperature and the moisture levels, so that your bread doesn't go stale. But historically, another purpose was to keep pests out. They were an essential kitchen gadget. I'd say so. What were they made of? They can be made of wood or metal, or even bread boxes made out of pottery. Well, you learn something new every day. Okay, back to the game. Let's start over, though. I have a new answer. Okay, person, place, or thing? Thing. Is it bigger than a bread box? Neither. What? Uh... uh. Is it a bread box? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You're bad at this game. (laughs) To learn more about baking with Bob's Red Mill's extensive line of whole grain products, as well as grab some delicious recipes and great coupon offers, head to bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Bob's Red Mill, believers in whole grain foods for every meal of the day. Cynthia Nims, a writer on modernist cuisine, starts us off with our around-the-world tour de force of sandwiches. I mean, obviously there's a thousand and one sandwiches around the world, probably five thousand and one sandwiches around the world that um, make good use of bread. And the very first meal I had in France ever was a street sandwich. It was just like walking down the street and there's the guy selling the ham and cheese sandwiches. And um, I will never, ever forget that meal because it was an amazing piece of bread. It was divine butter, just the richest, most 
beautiful butter I'd ever had in my whole life. Um, a perfect piece of Paris ham and Gruyere cheese, and maybe a little bit of mustard. I don't honestly remember. Um, but that the it, it just blew my mind. I I thought I was going to France to have like duck à l'orange and be blown away by that, but I was blown away by this amazing sandwich and the. Um, the chewiness of the bread, it's got the light crunch on the crust, but the chew um, that contributes to just a really delicious uh, sandwich experience, unlike, again, I hate to go back to dissing our American sandwich bread, um, but, you know, it's not just a squishy, quick to, you know, digest, I mean, um, chew sandwich. It's a, it's a much more of a gastronomic experience because the chew of the bread and the, with the butter and the cheese and all that stuff just makes for something really delicious. Um, <laughs> there you go. Maybe, maybe. Um, it's, I don't know. It could be, but it's got character. I and mean, I think that's the thing. It's not just a vehicle. Like a sandwich bread is sandwich bread in America. I think maybe just because it happens to hold cheese and meat together really well. Like it's almost, I hate to say, a little bit more of a vehicle than a thing in itself where in so many other cultures you have a sandwich and the bread is as much a part of that experience as the um in you know whatever the filling is and but i think that's kind of part of the fun of sandwiches in general is that there are so many different breads so many different styles of bread and that you can find probably exactly the right uh filling for every bread We're not all John Montague, the fourth Earl of Sandwich, and the eponymous inventor of the sandwich. But who here thinks Francisco deserves a sandwich named after him? Well, we do. I'm, I'm a big sandwich guy. I mean, I think sandwich is the perfect meal. I think that I could have sandwiches easily, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Just because the variety that's there, is, it's, it's limitless, and it's, it's such a brilliant food. And you could either use flatbreads and rich breads. I mean, you name it. For me, it's, it's, it's the perfect vessel for food. And it could be, you know, as simple or as elaborate as you want to make it. A Francisco sandwich would, there would be a, hmm, it's just, I, okay, it might have to be a thick-cut slab of bacon, um, but crispy. I mean, I, I, I like thick bacon, but I don't like flabby bacon, so... Thick cut, crispy bacon. Um, there's a sourdough in the mix that is toasted, but uh, toasted on a flat top with butter. Um, and there has to be a cold component there. So I'm, I, I might be describing a BLT at this point. Um, I would probably add uh, avocado to it as well. Um, but I also like a very simple like rye bread with a big hunk of pastrami on it, especially the pastrami that we make here, and our sauerkraut and our pressure cooked mustard seeds, that, that is, to me, like one, a, a beautiful sandwich right there. As more of a dark rye person, I agree with all the bacon and butter, but the gradient transition from light to dark breads is a slippery slope for some. Je voudrais une baguette, s'il vous plaît, bien cuite. And what does bien cuite mean? Bien cuite means... Good baking. What is good baking? Or is baked well done lost in translation? 
golden is boring, brown is good. So I love that in France you see uh, a lot of baguettes that, that are on the darker side, and that's where you get flavor. I love that contrast of the darker, crusty outside and the super soft, fluffy, airy interior of a baguette. I think that's awesome. I think I'm most, I tend to personally be most attracted to breads that do have contrast, you know, like a crusty, rough looking exterior, maybe um, something that's going to have some character and flavor. I mean, I think that's the thing I most love is that rich flavor that you get with a, a nutty, crunchy uh, crust on a bread. Um, there is always a time and a place for um, a white, fluffy loaf of, you know, the wonder style bread. But to me, that just, it's not even anything against the bread itself. It's just that it's the fact that it's so light in color and doesn't get the toasty character. I just think there's no way it can match the flavor of a good sort of rustic artisan loaf. So I love seeing a crusty texture on the surface. I love the brown, as I, you know, commonly say, I think brown is where flavor comes from. And then um, cutting into the bread and just seeing the pockets of sort of air and lightness that contrast with that crusty exterior. Um, I think that's where you get beautiful elegance in a in a loaf of bread. Um, not just one solid flavor and texture all the way through from crust to center. I like there to be some variety and character that's going to play out when you're in, enjoying the, the slice of bread. But how does having character come without character flaws? You need to take care of the baking of the bread. You need to be perfectly baked. You know, all the time people ask you to have a white bread, but we want to sell brown bread because brown means that you have a lot of uh, flavors coming when you have the caramelization of the bread. Ken Forkish, owner of Ken's Artisan and Ken's Artisan Pizza, and the author of Flour, Water, Salt, Yeast, takes the long and high road to baking bread. It's how you get the subtleties, like French artist Degas would in his paintings and sculptures. Painting is easy when you don't know how, but very difficult when you do. Degas said that, but it pertains to bread baking, too. Art is not what you see, but what you make others see. Again, Degas. But again, it's all about bread. It's making, taking those shortcuts, making those sacrifices to quality. And so that means using <clears throat> using a very high quality flour uh using uh the best fermentation techniques uh and using every everything i know uh to produce the the kind of bread that really speaks to me the kind of bread that has character it's not <clears throat> it's not blonde on the outside and spongy on the inside you know it's got a crust that has flavor it's probably pretty dark crust unless it's unless it's a baguette uh, it's got an open crumb uh, that has both flavor and a lightness to it, texture, unless it's a dense bread like a rye bread. It's really hard for me to answer that question. Uh, but I, I guess if I need to sum it up in just a small number of words, uh, you know, a truly artisan bread is one that's made by someone who understands the craft, who has the knowledge and the experience, uh, and who produces... Uh, a bread that is really of exceptional quality. It's funny because as soon as I try to define, I immediately think of the exceptions. Uh, so, like my uh, my Levant breads, which um, you know, I started out as you know, that's really all I wanted to do was bake French country breads. Um, they are they're baked to where the crust has a kind of a dark chestnut brown color, and I want uh, 
I want like solid baking, but I don't want to be the crust to be too thick. Uh, I want a kind of a thin crisscrust in the bread. But baked to that dark color, you get that Maillard reaction that produces almost umami flavors in the crust. And those flavors from the crust, they permeate into the crumb. And a lot of Americans that are used to eating or buying breads that have a very blonde color, uh, they look, you know, they sometimes still look at my bread and they think that it's burnt. But that's not true. We're baking to a specific, like, chestnut color of the crust to get the kind of flavor and texture that we enjoy in our breads. But then there are other breads, like a baguette, um, that, no, it doesn't take that dark color. I want to make a classic French baguette uh, so that <clears throat> the color of that crust is beyond blonde, but you know, hopefully it has some nice red notes. And uh, one of the things about the color of a crust is it doesn't really achieve its true potential unless you've hit the perfect point of fermentation in the dough. Uh, so sometimes I had my bakers come to me and said, I couldn't get the color of the crust. Uh, so that's probably because the dough wasn't fully fermented. Uh, so it's a complex picture. It's not just baguettes. Perfection can be found in pita, too, as pronounced by Wasef Haroun, co-owner of Mam Noon in Seattle. I'm a, personally a huge fan of pita. In particular, what I love is taking a well-made pita and then toasting it to the point where it's evenly brown and crunchy and a little bit burned. It's a really interesting experiment. Take a pita, go into a gas range and, and put, put it on top of the gas range and just uh, wait until it's just about to start catch, catching fire and flip it over to the other side. That's, for me, that's heaven. Many people consider tartine in San Francisco a mecca. As Chad Robertson, co-owner and head baker, has firmly established himself and his bakery as one of America's, if not the world's best. Patrons line up for their daily late afternoon release of freshly baked bread, but it's what they do with those day-old loaves that make the business of bread so complex. One time a chef apologized to me that was I was making bread for a restaurant. And at the time, this was a very long time ago, I was only baking four days a week. And so on one of the days, the bread was one or two days old. And the chef was, was uh, brushing it with butter and, and olive oil and garlic and grilling it over a wood fire, making like this killer garlic bread. And I ate at the restaurant on one of these days where, you know, I hadn't baked for two days. And the chef apologized before they sent the bread out. They were like, hey, I'm, I'm sorry, but the bread's two days old, so I grill it now over the fire, and, and I'm really sorry to do that to your bread. And I was like, what are you talking about? That's like the best thing to ever, ever to do to our bread. <laughs> so, you know, like I still, have that, I still have that approach. Like I want people to take the bread like it's a piece of meat or like it's a beautiful ripe tomato and do something with it. You know, of course, you can just, you can just eat bread fresh. You can put some butter on it. You can dip it in olive oil. Uh, you can brush it with beef fat. We, we do all that stuff, but there's also, I think, uh, as a chef, I like to I like to push myself and my team and and see what you know what other ways we can uh, use bread in interesting uh, applications. Comment on that. I think your question is the perfect uh, area to bring up definitions and proportions because, again, not playing God. I don't, I'm not going to tell somebody how much bread they should be eating, be eating, but how much bread they think they should be eating will probably define what kind of bread they should be eating. So 
I'm not anti-white bread. I'm not anti-white croissants because white croissants are way better than any whole grain croissant you're ever going to eat. But now if you're having five croissants a day, you should probably eat a whole grain croissant. But you're still having a ton of butter. So, you know, but, but you know, so if, you're, if you are making bread a major part of your diet, you're probably going to want to eat, uh, obviously, you know, long fermented whole grain breads that have a lot of nutrition in them, uh, you know, variable nutrition that can actually sustain your body. If you're eating a, a good combination selection of variability of, you know, vegetables, fruits, greens, uh, you know, legumes, and then having two to four slices a day of, of bread with that, it doesn't really matter what bread you eat at that point. Because if you take the proportions and the definitions of your food throughout that day in the, in the total food that you're eating, it really isn't going to be that big of a variable of what you consumed for breakfast, what type of bread you ate. So I think that's an important thing is there's a lot of talk in the world right now, you know, I think in the bread world specifically, oh, you know, real bakers bake whole grain bread. You know, it's like, well, whole grain bread is really good depending on the application and what you're eating it for. But uh, for me, you know, good food has to have flavor, functionality, uh, nutrition, and sustainability. Ken Forkish is constantly learning and questioning the definitions of bread and what personally describes him as a bread baker. And, you know, the baking style, especially from Chad, uh, bacon to, you know, that deep, dark color uh, uh, in, the, in the crust of the breads is something that, uh, that I followed as much as I could. I mean, it was a challenge for me because my, you know, so many people walked in. It's not for everybody. A lot of my customers don't want bread that looks like that. So they're actually not my customers. <laughs> I'm sticking to it. I, took so, I got so much grief in my first couple of years. I had published a little pamphlet that said, why we bake it dark. I'm sure it didn't help, but I just needed to get that out of my system. Even today, I'm one of my biggest grocery stores that I sell to, you know, their, their current uh, bread department manager, I can't say who it is, um, is complaining about the bread being burnt. And she sends a picture and I go, that's just how we want it. And, you know, I specifically called out, I said, if you look at two of California's most famous bakeries right now, you know, Tartine and Turkey Manufacturing, and then Manresa bread down in Los Gatos. Um, you look at their bread and, uh, you know, I'm right in that zone. So maybe you want Kansas bread. But in San Francisco, it's all about whole grain bread, right? It wasn't Chad Robertson's intention to make such a recognizable loaf that it would become ingrained in the food lexicon of the Bay City. But it's become just that. But this kind of bread has been happening here since the 1970s. So why has a bakery only 15 years old defined the past 50 years? And will it continue to do so for the next 50? I think that unintentionally, Tartine, me and my team, for sure, over the years have created a recognizable loaf, um, definitely. At the same time, and, and that does just happen. I mean, we put, we put everything we've got into our books we don't hold back secrets we don't give misinformation we give it all out and so you know every time we release a book um if if we have good stuff in the book you know that you know five years later you're going to see the stuff around because people are going to know how to make it and and it's a i mean i'm always flattered when people are making stuff that that because i'm i'm just making stuff that i was inspired to make from the people that taught me and so it's just like it's all coming full circle um at the same time, the longer I'm in this business, I, I start feeling like uh, it's a real challenge and, and one that I, I happily take up to, to try to innovate and to try to create new things and new ways of getting more grains 
into bread. Um, you know, for sure, getting back into this, wanting the flavor and wanting the nutrition of whole grain, but also realizing that since the 70s, when people started trying to make whole grain bread, uh, still probably the same percentage of people in the 1970s that wanted to eat it, want to eat it in 2017. It's not a very high percentage. So, you know, I, I'm taking that challenge very seriously of trying to figure out an, a, a way and alternative ways of making getting whole grains and different kinds of whole grains, even gluten-free, into bread that aren't that isn't just swapping whole grain flour for white flour. I feel like uh, that's a little boring to me. It doesn't really. It's not very effective. Um, like I said, it's been 50 years of this. It's, it's not very effective. So. Um, we're trying to come up with a different way of doing that that's more interesting for us as bakers, but also it makes something that, say, my 10-year-old daughter is going to choose to eat over, you know, white sort of bland bread because not because it's healthier because she, uh, she doesn't care about that. She's 10. She, I want to make something that she wants to eat because it looks good and it tastes good. American bread is in no way a comprehensive term. Both Richard Miskovich, assistant professor at Johnson & Wales and author of From the Wood-Fired Oven, and William Rubel, author of Bread, A Global History, elucidate on the evolution of our national style. I'm here at the uh, International Symposium on Bread talking about how the industry's changed in the last 20 years or so, and it's been tremendous uh, evolution as far as us coming together as a, as a group of, of bakers, like when the Bread Bakers Guild of America first got started, and really learned basics of baking with whatever flour was available, um, mostly white flour, without having the food culture change that brought you know, widespread farmer's markets and, and now the, the local farmers that are making grain and having them mill it in, in-house, either, either for bakers or bakers doing it themselves. So from cookbooks, which I know the cookbook literature of the 19th century, most of those books, though, were written, published in New England, and New York remains the publishing capital. So I'm aware there were sort of New England breads that had rye, corn, and wheat mixed together, and that was different from breads in the South. Advertorials about bread roared in during the 1920s and urged Americans to eat more bread, as if to say, a complete meal, or at least half of it, is not without bread. We found this awesome advertisement from 1923 uh, that was taken out in an American magazine. It was by a flour company. And the point of the article is it says, eat more bread. And in the fine print, it says, make bread a large part of your diet, up to half. <laughs> now, <laughs> Eating half your diet as bread would not seem sustainable today. I, I, I might do it, but I'd, I'd regret it like the next day. Our senses inform us of the color, weight, and consistency of bread. But neither sense nor reason can ever inform us of those qualities which fit it for the nourishment and support of a human body. David Hume, an 18th century Scottish philosopher, said this. But Jim Chevalier, a modern-day food historian, now has the reasoning as to why. The reason we have uh, enriched bread like uh, help, helps build strong bodies 12 ways is because 
during World War II, the government realized that so much had been removed from American bread that they had to put... Enriched bread is really just putting back in what's supposed to be in the bread in the first place. So they started putting all these nutrients back in bread because, you know, by the start of the 20th century, they had bleached, they were already bleaching flour, which other countries don't do. So American bread for a long time was much whiter, suspiciously whiter than anybody else's bread. Um, there was a way it was packaged and stored, like uh, when you put it in uh, paper for a long time that does things to the crust uh, so th there's various things that resulted in American bread being far less nutritious by World War II and so they there was actually a government decision to put in all these re recover all these nutrients that should have been there in the first place What's Enriching is Dan Leader founder and president of Bread Alone Bakery and his approach to inspiration using what's around him by way of a slow food revolution. The green market has really been inspirational in a way that I didn't think it would happen. Like when the green markets first started talking about local grains, I, I will have to say that I was like skeptical, you know, like, is this really going to make a difference? Um, uh, I think that there's been some disappointments. I think a lot of the local grains get used for beer and spirits. Um, more than bread, but there are there are more and more um, uh, there are there's more local grain being grown. You know, I don't I don't think it's a revolution. I think it's a it's a slow steady movement. It's certainly an exciting time for bread in the past decade alone, where we've seen so much growth and support for better bread from the ground up. Uh, you know what's uh, so cool to me is uh, just. In the last 10 to 15 years, I think more in the last 10, uh, is the number of really craft-oriented, high-quality bakeries and pizzerias uh, that have opened in the United States. Uh, there's way more out there than there were when I opened. Uh, and I think that's really encouraging uh, that there's that many people that want to practice these crafts uh, and that there's enough public out there to support them all. Uh, so it's so much easier, I think, to get a really good pizza or a really good loaf of bread in this country now than it was 15 years ago. And that's, uh, that's very encouraging to me. I love that. But let's look at access and how we sustain this steady stream of grains and information. The future is bright with bread, as Stephen Jones, director of the Bread Lab at Washington State University, muses. I know at home I can make a really good loaf of bread using organic flour for less than a dollar a loaf with no junk in it, and, and it doesn't take that long. So, um, you know, you can't get the worst bread in the world at the store for less than a buck. So, so there, there's something, there's, there's a disconnect there, and there's some oddities there in, in terms, and, and I get, you know, I get, I get why all that occurs, but, but still, um, I think we need to be careful to to keep good food on the on the as a as a target for what we do in terms of access as well. So it's not to say we don't work with with high end chefs and bakers. We do, and there's a place for that, of course. But there's also a place for folks that are that are barely getting by to to get better food into their diets. Innovation distinguishes between a leader and a follower. Or so said Steve Jobs, and we know what he did for Apple. 
who will do the same for bread? I want to create innovation and I want to create revolution when we talk about bread and all Viennoiserie program. I don't want to be, again, the French basic guy putting a new baguette in the market or putting a new croissant in the market. Not interesting about this. I want to create something that is, um, uh, that you will make you like sink and you, you will be lost when you have it. Maybe a croissant, why, why the croissant have to be long and the shape? What about another shape? What about another flavor? What about another butter that is flavored with something? Oh, you don't know. It's like, I have a ton of ideas that I'm putting together to bring, to bring this. And, and actually, um, it was very interesting for me to work with modernist cuisine because of this. Because I feel like everything they do is innovation. And when they ask me to do the, the bread testing for them, I'm like, differently, yes, no problem. I'm I, where I have to sign. <laughs> Nathan's deep dive into the subject of bread hasn't left him without levity. It's not authoritarian. There is no draconian response to not choosing the correct kind of bread. The right one is the one you want and endeavor. It's up to you what bread you want to have. And so having empowered you with the knowledge of here's how this bread is supposed to be, according to us and probably most people, or at least the, the sets of professionals we canvassed, hey, party on. Do whatever you like. But it, you're more empowered in doing what you like if you first know what it's supposed to be and then say, well, I want it different than that. As opposed to, well, I was trying to make the real thing, and I never have succeeded, and so I've decided to like what I make. Which is okay, too, but uh, our goal is to try to get you more insight. And I think that's really the difference between our approach and most cookbooks, is that there are reasons why things work. There are reasons why you do a particular technique a certain way. And then those reasons... Uh, are actually have a tremendous impact on the final product. So if you get some insight into it, you understand, and you can be creative, and you can do whatever you want. Yes, you can think outside the box. But what about thinking within it? An amazing thing happened during the process of writing Modernist Bread, taking a preserving tradition and elongating the life of bread in a vacuum. What we have here is something that we're all very excited about, which is our jarred or canned breads. Uh, and it is exactly that. It's basically a dough that is baked in a jar, but it's preserved through what would be exactly like the canning process. We first were inspired to do this when we saw this Italian baker who baked panettones in, um, in jars. And so I thought it was a cool idea. He puts panettone dough in a jar, he bakes it, and then, you know, it's, it's, they sell it like that. It's, it lasts for a long time, I guess, and so on. And so we tried that. We basically took our panettone dough, 
we put in a jar. We had to get a jar that is open mouth. You know, you have straight edge jars so that whatever you put in it can slide out easily. If you think about bread, it's not. It needs to have these these walls that that are open enough so that we can slide out. Uh, these are the Weck jars, and so baked it. It was slightly terrifying because whenever you have anything under pressure, there's a chance that it's going to explode. And so when we were baking these, we all stood many feet away from the oven just in case. Because we had never done it before, we didn't know if there was like a special trick to it. or So it was like the maiden voyage of the jarred bread. We baked them. It was equally terrifying to take it out of the oven because you have a temperature differential. Uh, so if you have a temperature differential, typically with glass, like if you have Pyrex and you put it on something, something hot and you put it on something wet, it's going to just crack. So that was slightly terrifying as well. But took it out, put it on a sheet pan with, lined with a wire rack, and then just walked away till the next day. We came back, and it was a dozen panettones or so. And so it, they were completely cooled down. And I opened one. And it made that you know beautiful hissing sound of that, that vacuum that had already formed due to the cooling happening inside the jar. What you're seeing here is at least six months old. And there isn't a mold spore on top of this. So these breads have essentially been preserved, almost static in time. Because when you cook things like this, you're not only creating a vacuum, but if there was anything living in there, it's dead. So you're creating this antiseptic environment where there's going to be no mold. There's going to be, I mean, if the jar was clean and, you know, you, you did everything as, as you're supposed to do, you're going to have this bread basically last you for a long period of time. So we're, we're on about six months now. We're trying to see what they look like in a year. Innovations abounded, but not all materialized at modernist cuisine, and many were reinventions of breads before. And that's okay. Taking from the past doesn't mean you can't modernize it and make it its own thing. Mark Jacobs, a celebrated American fashion designer, believes innovation is an evolutionary process, so it's not necessary to be radical all the time. One of the things that is a modern innovation that dates uh, around that time is high hydration breads. Um, Chad Robertson's bread, uh, for example, uh, Chad was kind enough to write the forward for the book. That's a modern invention. And to me, that's a modern style bread. Now, it looks really rustic and old if it's got lots of big bubbles in it. But it turns out uh, no bread in the past did that. At a certain point, being more primitive isn't a great thing. Also, part and parcel of that is that the world expects that oh, all the best breads were in the past. Well, that's cer certainly not true for food in restaurants. If we went to a bunch of great restaurants in New York, we would find dishes you can only find there. They're inventions, they're brand new things that that chef has done, which is terrific. If we, we could go to a bunch of fantastic bakeries in Brooklyn or Manhattan and Paris and London and Tokyo and Seattle, and we would find pretty much the same breads. Because, oh, you don't have a batard? Oh, you don't have a baguette? Oh, you don't have a pen de campagne? And if you stop innovation because you, you create this myth that can only occur in the past, you really have a problem. Jim Leahy of Sullivan Street Bakery 
enjoys bread on a baseline level. Is it pleasurable or isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, in as much as the work itself that people experience is experiential and fleeting. You know, you walk into a museum or you have some visual media splashed before your eyes. And it's, it's a moment of pleasure, just like, you know, eating good food or eating good bread or eating anything that's enjoyable. We go back to it theoretically because it's pleasurable. If it's not pleasurable, we don't go back to it. With all that said, bread is booming, prosperous in promise, and in the hands of all-embracing bakers in many milieu. The context and setting may change, but the underlying core of what bread is doesn't. Bread is momentous, and much of our contemporary understanding is thanks and due to modernist cuisine's modernist bread book. It's not just a cookbook, it's a catalog, a reference point, and an introspective look into the world of bread, as we hope this podcast has been as well. Nathan Mervold once said, one of the problems with posing a bold new plan is you can't just extrapolate from previous plans. Bread is at a stage that, uh, you know, coffee and chocolate were decades ago. And it's going to be tough sledding because we have a lot of attitudes about bread uh, that are kind of built into many of us that come from this notion that it needs to be cheap or free. If we're not willing to go a little out of our way to seek out a great baker, maybe stand in line a little longer than we would at the supermarket and maybe pay a little more, if we're not willing to do that, We're getting the bread we insist on. Studs Terkel, no relation, an American author, historian, and broadcaster, best remembered for his oral histories of common Americans and hosting a long-running radio show in Chicago, once said, Work is about a search for daily meaning as well as daily bread, for recognition as well as cash, for astonishment rather than torpor. In short, for a sort of life rather than a Monday through Friday sort of dying. As noted in episode 5 about politics, bread is part of the good war. It may seem absurdist to say, but in the actuality of everyday life, bread plays an important part in general. According to mid-20th century French dramatist Jean Anouy, I like reality. It tastes like bread. Well, I like bread because it's real. It's historical, perceptible and perceivable, a palpable thing. It is self-evident and unmistakable. It is bread as we know it, and we hope to know more and ever more. This has been Episode 8 of Modernist Breadcrumbs. Bread Box. This has been a labor of loaf, and we hope you'll listen to Grain. Peace and loaf. I hope this episode got a rise out of you. So as we've heard, talking about bread can be a real loaf or death situation. Jeez, Connor, calm down. No need to get riled up. We dreams, breadheads. Trust me, it's going to be hot. Big appreciations to the whole HRN crew and to the Julia Child Foundation for giving me the opportunity to work with such an incredible team. Shout out to Sam Lee for expertly cutting clips based on our sketchy timestamps. Thanks to David Tadashore for keeping us on task in the studio and always correcting our 80s movie references. HRN would like to thank MoFad for hosting our kickoff party and all the inspiring breadheads who took the time to talk to us for this project. 
Thanks to NYU Food Studies for supporting my nerdiness. And finally, to our listeners, my family, and friends for putting up with all the puns. I loaf you all. My name is Connor O'Donovan, and thank you for listening to Modernist Breadcrumbs on Heritage Radio Network. Big shout out to mum and dad, Izzy, Alex, David, Leo, Vinny, Carl, and Deirdre, Trinity FM, Ashton Comprehensive School Transition Year Radio Club, and of course, everybody keeping the Irish soda bread tradition alive and well. Ahead of my departure, I'll be packing my baguettes. This is Michael Harlan Turkel, and thank you for listening to Modernist Breadcrumbs. A big thank you to Nathan and Francisco and the whole Modernist Cuisine team, my HRN co-hosts Jordan and Connor, whose voices have graced the podcast throughout, David Tattashore for all his behind-the-scenes studio work, Katie and Kat for their belief in our ragtag team, to all the farmers, millers, flour makers, bread bakers, oven builders, wheat scientists, and home cooks making their first loaf, and a very special thank you to Thomas Hughes and Gretchen Lowe's of Carol Cleveland Sings and their chewy theme music. And of course, Bob's Red Mill for all the support. And not lastly, to yeast and gluten. <laughs>